Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we're on one of Ireland's premier inland waterways with young anglers, and we learn all about some of our native fish species. Recently, I visited the River Inney at Rathone, just outside Mullingar in County Westmeath. I was with renowned angling guide Mick Flanagan and the Dunhoo family to experience a day's fishing for pike. It was a very cold but clear morning on the Inney, and winter is the prime time for fishing for these ferocious predators. Mick Flanagan runs Midland Angling, and he's the expert. Just trying to run at the top of the water there, there's no Low dead best. No, normally you drop a fish on it there. Look, sink and draw. Now that looks pretty real the way you're doing that. Oh, look, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. See him. Look, see him gone. See the swirl. Swirl. Come on down here, one of the young lads. So one came for it but didn't take? He's gone with it. He just, sometimes you just let him go for, a, for a, a couple of seconds, you know. Sometimes you could strike straight away. What? You're in him. Go on. Go on. You manage him. Oh, jeez, he's fighting well. He's fighting well. Good gas, Look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. Oh, he's on top of the water now. Go gussing. There you are. No. What do you think of that? Oh, oh he's got teeth. He's always has a claws in the meat. What do you think of him? Is that your first pike? Yeah. Is it? First fish caught in Ireland from me. Can I hold him? Oh, you're going to hold him. I'm going to get a picture of you. So, how do you feel about catching your fish? Good. He's a, he's a bit cross looking, isn't he? Have you got a kiss for him? Oh, look at me, lads, for a second. Just look at me, Zoe. Lovely. I get the whole group you there. Yeah, Can yeah. I throw him? I will throw him in now, one second. Can I throw him back in? Yeah, there you go. Sure. Oh, I'm going to try catching him again. <laughs> <laughs> well done, son. Yeah, you already have the hole. Oh. Thank you very much. The pike, they're incredible predators. That fish there, the teeth on it are unbelievable. It's incredible, and if you're not careful, you can get an awful doing with them. And whatever it is about them, it's like the teeth are torn back. And anything that goes in there is brown bread. You know, no way back out, simple as that. As the same as your bloody hand, sometimes you do. Sometimes we're trying to unhook them, they will throw their head at the catcher. And you won't, you won't stop bleeding for a good while if you get a right good, good doing now. I got an awful doing a couple of years ago in Dinny with, uh, oh, that lad, he got a huge pike, I had him in there. He was a very big fish. But when I was unhooking him, he turned his head on me. He turned his head and I just had it over him. He buried it. Oh, Jesus, he was stuck in me. And you have to, just have to pull them back out because, as I said, they're turned back. You have to be careful with the old hooks itself. I've got a couple of bad doings now with the hooks and hooking the fish, and you think you're grand. Just like that little pike we had there now, he was very lightly hooked. And lucky the young lad didn't lose him. There was only one, one bar. You see, there's only one barb up in the roof of his mouth. He was barely hooked. But, and uh, he went back fairly happily. They're not damaged. Oh, divvled a bit. No, they're hardy old fish. Especially this time of year. And, uh, in the warm water, in the summertime, you wouldn't take, to, take them out too long, just get a quick photograph and back. But in the water temperatures like that, you have, a, you, have a, you have a bit of time to take a few pictures, especially if it's a good, if it's a good fish. You take a couple of pictures, you measure them, and maybe measure his girt as well, in case you're going to claim a specimen. You know, you measure the length and the girt, and, and he, they'll go back, they'll go back. Perfect. No bother Sometimes they might be deeply hooked, but there's plenty of old equipment out there now, the long nose pliers and forceps and all that type of stuff. For some anglers, they're nearly like dentists. They're better than dentists. Taking the Jesus hooks over them. When I was doing a lot of guiding, I'd be unhooking a lot of fishing. I was unhooking one one time on a little mini bulldog lure. 
like two Italians with me running yes, starting off first thing in the morning he got a small little pike about seven pound and whatever way he flung his head he buried it treble in my fingers no I buried him locked my two fingers again and threw the, the thumb there and that just like that and I could do nothing only put my hand into the water and take up the long nose players and pull them straight back out and the Italian says to me that evening Mike Mike you iron man <laughs> you know what could you do uh, Giovanni and, and whatever the other for his name I should just take out some great pike that day. They'd like pike up, they got one of the rubber door paddle tail, about 20 pounds. You see, you remember, I told you a while ago, you remember them things. Yeah. And I had, I had a grip of the crack. And I, uh, is fishing, does it still bring in a lot of tourists? It is. Now, the Midlands doesn't get its fair whack, and then we have an issue here with permits as well, which you don't have in any other region. And that's a deterrent the permit, even though I have to get because I'm living here. But Lockery is free. But like at the Indy here now and like old Deravara, Sheelan, they're all permit waters. It's something like 20 euro for a day taking that, you know. And like it's, oh man, it's not a, it's not a colossal lot of money, but still. And that's going to the state. That's IFI. I don't agree with it, but I have to get it. But it's, it's as a rule, no, that's why a lot of, a lot of bigger competitions to be fished on, on, on permit-free waters, you know. Because I used to love going to Lockheed there for the old three-day festival. The Easter weekend, it was great with a crack there. Like you get to meet up anglers and, and you get to fish new water circles, you know, and new techniques. And even when I have, when I used to be doing a lot of guiding, the Italians, the French, you know, even fly fishing, pike fishing, perch fishing, all different techniques. And you, you, it's a learning process all your life, you're learning. You learn things new every day. I there a couple of years ago, I started jigging for the perch big time. And I started, I had a fella from Myros' name. He did. Uh, he was a bellboy in the Four Seasons Hotel in Prague. Ray Myros is now. That's the truth. He's a lovely lad, young man, young lad. And uh, it was a t- it was a time the Ryan was after winning the the ruby, the won all the trophies. Mm. Your man was the coach. Here used to be in Wilson's Hospital. What's his name? Smith. 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 Whatever his name is. And at the time they were after winning that, and he was doing a tour of Mullingar with the cups and the big shield. And Myros was a big ruby fan. And I said nothing to him. And he was doing the few pubs, like a cons and Munningar, a big rugby pub that time. And he was in, I brought Meyer in, he got his picture taken with these trophies, and your man. Now, what's the chance of that? And he had mad rugby fan. And the poor old devil, he, he, he had mad fishing, mad pike fishing. And uh, he got a couple of good pike with me. He used to pay me every day all five euros. His tips. His tips paid for his old fishing trip, you know. He was a lovely lad. So I haven't seen him in a while because of the old. Lockdown and that, but uh, they're, they're coming back in dribs and drabs, you know. I'll be down to you in a minute. <laughs> you think you think I'm rearing your own kids and give up all this crack? <laughs> you know, on hook and jazz yokes out weeds and bushes. And, oh, I'll have to run down here for a bit. I'll come down here. And then that other poor devil, Stefano, he was over there about six weeks ago. Three of them came over. He, he, he's fanatic, fly fishing for pike, Fergal. Fanatic, at and he gets huge piking. He had his personal best pike here a couple of years ago. My, my younger brother, JJ, was with him. And we were all on Derivar, three boatloads. was to come, sometimes six of them used to come at a time, you know. They're fishing mad, 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 mad. And uh, they were on Derivara. They got stuck into a huge pike on the fly. Oh, it was a great battle with him. They're way up over the 20s, you know. Huge yoke. That's the first time I've ever seen a grown man crying with a fish in his arms. Never seen it. He cried in the boat. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, we'll get out, you know, in a second. 
Mick, here we have your lure boxes. Incredible variety of yokes. Yeah, but sure lures are made to catch anglers more so. You know that yourself, Fergal, but there is. I have a couple of hard baits there. Hard baits now aren't used as much now as the paddle tails and the shads. Still have a couple of the bulldogs. Okay, they're, they're kind of rubber. Yeah, they're, they're the shads. You buy them in the shops just, and you have to rig them up yourself. You know, like, like that. And These are savage gear. Some of them are savage gear. And they're, they're great little lures. Them little savage gear eels. They're ideal for, for this type of fishing. Colours colors can be very important certain days. Yellow, I find yellow a great colour. And when I'm trolling the lakes, if the sun breaks through, I put on a silver spoon. A silver spoon works quite well. Some of them baits now I haven't used in a good while. Now some sink, some float. That's right, some of them are suspending. That's a, that bait works well for me as well. Perch, Percy the Perch, all of names. These are the hard baits. They're an old bait I got from a friend of mine in Milan. But saying, you, you always learn something new. And you pick up baits off them. And if, you, if you fancy an old bait there, you can get it off them. They're two little baby shallow raiders. I got them off a friend of mine from Milan, Paolo. Right? I got huge pike on them yokes over the years. Now they're quite old, but they still work. There's teeth marks all over oh, them. Ah, they're destroyed. And uh, that poor devil. And they're, they're, they're western lures. They're a nice thing as well. They work well in the water. For, and then you have your rapala hard baits as well. They're, all, they're old, but they're still there. These are the most modern things. The, the paddle tails and the shads. They're, they're, they're lethal. And you've seen them there in the water. They're, they're like... Uh, it's got like a corkscrew on the tail. Heads. It's a savage action on it. And look, see, he's nearly bit off already. Look, and once the tail is gone, they're useless. They're finished. Simple as that. And they're not that ex- over expensive. Though. Some of them can be colossal money. You know, you're talking maybe some of the big line shows you for 30, 30 for 5 euro. You know, and uh, Jesus, if you lost them, you won't go home and tell the missus. <gasps> and for a start, you won't tell her the price of them. You can't even push her away from the window of the shop. She won't buy it. That, that, she look at it. She see this line through York, 30 euros worth. She said, There's two of them in your box. Hey, why are you looking at my fishing box for? They don't look in your handbag. <laughs> Over there, I'm going to have a cup of tea. <laughs> On the banks of the River Innie here at Rathone is a now closed eel smokehouse. It's a once thriving business which fell victim to the closure of eel fishing more than a decade ago. It was run by John Rogan. He showed me around his closed factory and told me all about eels. Well, look, it was just standing outside what was my eel smokehouse up until 2008 and that's how I intended making a living and in 2008 eel, eel fishing was closed in the country and, and that was it it's, it's like the deserted village this is where we did operate and basically it's, it's deserted now this is where we prepared the fish this was a, free, a cold room, freezer room preparation area then we came into the ovens so there, there were the ovens, and then we, you know, we prepared our fish in there, hung them on the racks, cooked them and smoked them. So this is our packing room, a nice area. But Everything know, is still here. This was our dispatch area. This is another cauldron. So it was a substantial investment at the time. But luckily enough, you arrived at a good time. Two weeks ago, I finished my last payment on it, 13 years later. Tell me something about eels first. Well, eels, you know, the, the European eel is basically, the European species is, is all of Europe. So the European eel returns to the Saragossa Sea to spawn every autumn. Which is way down eels. in the Caribbean. Yes, north of the, north of the Caribbean there. So 
is sargasso weed. So there's a massive area of sargasso weed. So the eel go to spawn there. They never return. They spawn and die. So basically, the eel population of eel was was under not threat, but all over Europe there was you know there was a a reduction in the number of eels because of different factors, mostly barriers. Now, obviously, fishermen have have a, an impact on the, on the eel population, but barriers and turbines and dams are the curse of the eel. Because the eel, they breed in the Saragossa Sea, but then they come back. They come back. To the river, they were... No, not to the river. They just come back on the North Atlantic Drift, and they're dispersed widely all over Europe. They, they, they hit mostly, for some reason or other now, they whatever has happened with the North Atlantic Drift, they don't seem to come as far north as they did. They hit the coast of France in their millions. And their fish for there, and that, where the Elvers come, that has become one of the biggest smuggling operations in the world. The catching of the tiny Elvers, and they're then smuggled to China for farming. That's, that's they're more valuable than cocaine. They're, they make... 3,000 euros a kilo. How do you mean for farming? They, they farm them and they grow them up to, up to say, 500 grams and then they, then they sell them. And they actually sell them to Japan. We're here now on the River Inni. How did your fishery operate? How do you catch eels? You ca- well, basically we catch them in nets, fight nets and river nets. And we caught them in the autumn time when uh, they were migrating. That's around about now? Around about now. And we caught them during the summer in the lakes, in Lakul and in different lakes. So, we, you know, there was lots of eels. There was no problem with eels. We just used to catch nearly as many as we needed. Because, you know, we were smoking. And, and I, I had the, the, a licence on Lakul, so I just took what I needed because there were so many of them there. So then you prepared them, smoked them. Who did you sell them to? We sold them everywhere. Like, we sold them Shelburne Hotel, Dublin Airport, farmers' markets... You know, they were quite popular and, and they have got even more popular because in the intervening years now, the, the population of Eastern European people who really love smoked eel has increased so much in this country. It, you know, there would be a ready market for smoked eel, you know. Yeah. That's so you had this very substantial investment here on the banks of the river. You were closed down when? In 2008, 2009. What, what, ha- what, what happened? Basically, you know, all over Europe there was an eel, a plan to help the survival of eels. So here in Ireland, the government and the minister decided the best way was just to shut down the eel fishing industry, shut down fishing. But when they shut down fishing, they didn't, they didn't consider us. Okay. Did you get compensation? To 2018, we were offered a small compensation package. I was offered eight thousand euros. Wouldn't even pay for one room of your equipment. <laughs> yes, so I refused to take it. Now, some other, like eel fishermen that weren't as well as much invested in the eel fishing business as I was did take the compensation packet, and it suited some people to take it. But it was ten years later, okay. and you know it, it took a lot of uh, diplomacy to even get that in place. You know, what have you done since? Well, I I just survived. I survived. I, I got another smoker's and I used to do the farmer's markets with smoked bacon, smoked sausages. 
and you know do the but over the last couple of years with the pandemic basically that business has closed now as well and has the population come back well they think it has you know there's ongoing scientific research but it's difficult for the eel in ireland because i think maybe about 50 percent of our water is behind barriers so when the elvers arrive into ireland they're faced with the likes of Arden of Crusha, on the Liffey they're faced with they're faced with barriers nearly on all the big rivers. So half of our river systems are blocked off to the eels. And then half of them are blocked off when the eels are trying to migrate. Okay. So there's turbines turning there when the eel wants to get out of the country. You know, there's there's different research as to how much how many eels are killed, but there's a lot of them killed. What do you think should happen now? I honestly don't know. I'm that long. It's been a tough... You know, you, you're standing here. It, it, this place should be buzzing, you know. It's, it, it's been quite a, you know, a tough time, really. You know, I don't know what should happen. I, should, I think I should never have been closed, but I don't know whether I'd have the heart for going back into it or not, you know, because, yeah. you know, all your contacts are done. Everything is finished. What should happen for the sake of the eel... There should be a policy where the eel are properly looked after and that they're, that if the, if the turbines are in, on a river, that there's a proper system for letting them out. At least we should do that much. If we never recover the industry, the eel fishing industry, at least we should make an effort to let the eels out of the country. Back on the river, the Donoghue family, Carl his two sons, Brian and James, his sister, Niamh, and her husband, James, were enjoying their day out. Cahill Dunahoo is my name. I'm just uh, from the far side of Mullingar there in Gaybrook. We yep. brought the two boys out today. They're loving it. Yeah, we have uh, Brian here, who's 11, and then we have James, who's just uh, turned... Well, he's nearly eight now in February, but James absolutely loves fishing. He's YouTube mad and fishing the whole time, so he is. And he's got his uncle home from Malta now, and he's caught a fish today. He's caught, he caught one today. He brought in a, a, a lovely little pike there today and he's delighted. It's a really, really great morning out now. It's a beautiful, look, just looking down there at the river, it's absolutely stunning. Oh, it's, it's fabulous, it's fabulous. We should be making more of the, the landscape and the environment that we have here. But it's really, really classy. Hi, I am uh, James Pizani, I'm from Malta. Um, uh, nice day today for fishing in Ireland. <laughs> have you been fishing in Ireland before? Never, yes, it's the first time. But you're a very keen fisherman. You've been showing me some of your photographs. Yes, I uh, I do some fishing back in Malta, in the Mediterranean. It's nice, but I wanted to try fishing in Ireland as well, fresh water. What are you catching in Malta? Mainly we catch, uh, I think it's bream, tuna, sea bream, yeah. tuna. What do you make of today, the Riverini? Yeah, very nice. I uh, expected weather to be worse, so yeah, yeah it's good. It's, a, it's a beautiful, still, cold morning. Niamh, you're fishing today. We're trying to fish today. (laughs) The two boys are really keen. Uh, Well, one maybe more than the other, but I'm hoping that if we get a bit of a bite, we'll we'll get the other fella hooked as well. You live in Malta? I do, yeah. I've been over there for the last nine years. How did you end up there? Uh, Sure, the old story, love. My heart brought me there. (laughs) I try to get back about three or four times a year. Obviously, yeah. with COVID, it's been a little bit difficult, but this is the third time back now in the last couple of months, so yeah. we've been very lucky. And you organised today, what do you think of the fishing? Oh, yeah, Mick's doing a great job. Sure, he's great knowledge of the area, and 
good man for the old chat. We've had a nice little snack now. We're ready to head off again for the second half of the morning. So it's a great day. James, why do you like fishing? It's just fun and... You've caught a fish already. What was, what was it like? Um, scaly, it had big teeth and it was a pike. It looks kind of angry. Yeah. I caught two other ones in Malta before. How often do you go fishing? About once every month. It's great. Are you going to keep it up? Yeah. It was fun. Uh, I liked that uh, like we didn't have to go out on a boat or stuff. We could just go on the side. And like I liked that my brother caught a fish and that he was really happy. And the James, man that brought us out was really nice to us. Yeah, would you go again? Uh, yeah, I would, because it's um, fun and just a good experience. The fish look pretty scary to me. They're they're fairly big and they have huge teeth. <laughs> yeah, I just know that you don't really eat them and that they they kind of look they look a bit weird, kind of. And it's kind of scary. Do you think young people are interested in fishing now, or is it dying out? Ah, uh, there's not that many young anglers coming on. But you go to competitions now, there's very few junior anglers nowadays. Wintertime isn't ideal weather for kids. You know, like, Jesus Christ, they get their feet get cold, hands get cold, and then that's, that's the sour them for life. Mm. You know, it's as simple as that. You don't want to get in too much fishing at a young age because you sour them. And many thanks to Mick Flanagan and the Donahue family. You can find Mick on his website, midlandangling.com. Norman Freeman has been a long-time contributor to seascapes over the years. Tonight, he recalls tale from his seafaring years of a fish that's probably the polar opposite in fishing terms of the pike, the flying fish. On my first voyage in the Indian Ocean, I was fascinated by the sight of fish breaking the surface of the water, rising above the waves and then gliding along gracefully for long, long distances before splashing into the sea again. The grizzled chief officer who had been knocking around tropic seas for decades told me that these were flying fish. They measured about 12 inches or 30 centimetres. He said they had long, wide pectoral fins that could be spread like wings to give them lift as they flew along the surface of the waves. They live on plankton. They themselves make a tasty meal for dolphins, porpoises and other predators. They escape by vibrating their tails at great speed for a self-propelled leaf into the air to allow them to travel for 35 kilometres an hour. The long fins enable them to use the, the updraft created by wind and wave. They can stay above the water for distances of up to 200 metres. They're considered a delicacy by people in many parts of the world and are fished by a variety of methods. In Zanzibar, I got talking to an old Arab sailor who said that flying fish sometimes landed on the decks of the dhows that sailed between Arabia and East Africa. I heard an extraordinary story about flying fish from a man called Rui Fernandez, who came from the then Portuguese colony of Goa. His father was a steward aboard a cargo ship that was torpedoed in the Indian Ocean in 1942 by a Japanese submarine. He and eight or nine of the Indian crew managed to scramble aboard the last lifeboat just as the vessel started to go down. Rough seas had scattered the other lifeboats, and in the morning they found themselves alone on the wide open sea. They were badly shaken. Two men had been injured by the explosion. Fortunately, Rui's father and the ship's cook, a resourceful fellow from Gujarat, had managed to lug on board a gunny sack that held a small bag of flour, 
some lentils and onions, as well as a primer stove and some paraffin. They set about providing food for the famished men. They got the primus going, mixed rainwater with the flour and made a basic kind of chapati or roti. These were simply small, thin pancakes. But with a sprinkling of lentils and onions, they provided some sustenance. More than that, they boosted the morale of the famished men, who raised the sail. It became clear that the meagre supply of food would have to be rationed if they were to survive more than six or seven days. Then on the fifth day, the weakening men were startled to find themselves in the path of a shoal of flying fish. Some thumped into the deck, others hit the sail and fell at their feet. The men scrambled about and gathered about a dozen. The cook prepared some of these on the primus. They were a welcome addition to the chapatis. This fortunate event gave them some hope. One day later, they were overjoyed to see a ship appearing on the horizon. It spotted them and rescued them. It was a Greek vessel bound for Cochin on the Malabar coast, and it landed them there. Rui's father, relieved to be alive, made his way home to Goa. He was interviewed by a local Portuguese-language newspaper. It ran this remarkable story of survival under the heading Milagre dos Paixas, The Miracle of the Loaves and the Fishes. Norman Freeman And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme's podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. And Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.